is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. More good news about the vaccines. New study finds the Pfizer vaccine more than 91% effective six months after people got their second dose. Study based on more than 46,000 people. In the trials, just 77 cases of people who got COVID. We'll get into what that means for all of us. Parents in L.A. suing the school district when it comes to reopening schools, all because of the powerful teachers' union. We'll go back to Brazil, where the COVID surge is dire, threatening to collapse the health care system. Would you get one shot of Moderna and then the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Well, maybe someday we'll talk about that. Let's start with Pfizer, providing lots of immunity six months into things. With us, Dr. Sandra Nelson, infectious disease specialist, Massachusetts General, and assistant professor at Harvard Med. So, doctor, this is, this is good news. So I think, you know, we can infer some things from the Pfizer vaccine news today that it may apply to some of the other vaccines, which we'll learn more about in the in the months ahead. Uh, but I agree with you. This is really fantastic news, perhaps not surprising, but it's really nice to see it on paper. OK, so it's holding its effectiveness, basically 90 ish percent, 91, six months later. So I guess there's two ways to look at it. First is, yeah, six months. That's great. But then another crowd maybe goes, oh, well, maybe it's only six months. Well, it doesn't drop off to, you know, 10 percent the Tuesday after the six month clock rolls around. Right. So it's it's going to be maybe a sliding scale. We just have to see how far it goes. I think that there's a, a couple points to this. I mean, the first is that there's really no opportunity to know more than about six months. We really have only had these vaccines in clinical trials for that duration of time. So it's not to say exactly, as you pointed out, that there's going to be a, a cliff at the end of six months. It's really just that that's as far as we really know. Um, but we have begun to learn more about immunity after natural infection. And we believe that that immunity lasts at least six months, if not a little bit longer. And given that vaccination seems to produce more potent immunity than natural infection itself, there's really no reason to think that we're going to get more durability out of this vaccine than six months. And the be-all and end-all is not necessarily the level of antibody protection. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And I think one of the interesting take-homes from the Pfizer release today is the experience in South Africa. And one of the things that we, we know about these vaccines is that the actual quantity of type of antibodies against some of the, the variant strains that were seen in South Africa, we know that they're a little bit lower. Uh, however, the vaccine appeared to be just as effective, at least with small numbers in South Africa. And so you're absolutely right. Neutralizing antibody titers only tell a small piece of the immune story. And it's clear that there are other elements of the immune system which are also acting to protect individuals. We mentioned this at the top. What could it mean for the idea of eventual booster shots? I think we're still going to be in a wait and see situation. And I think that that could be in part because of uh, waning immunity over time. But I think more likely it may be because we're going to see different strains that might need us to tweak some of the uh, components of the vaccine to make sure that um, uh, the immunity is preserved. I don't think we know for sure that we're not going to need booster shots, but I think this provides some reassurance that at least we can get to that herd immunity threshold in the short term and really get this pandemic under control. Is it your uh, just a sort of educated guess, though, that if we were uh, to need booster shots, is it starting to seem like it's going to be less likely that it's going to, going to be a yearly ordeal as it is with the flu shot? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the things that we understand about this vaccine is that that actually, even though we're hearing a lot about these variants, 
the rate of mutation is quite a bit slower than with this virus than with others. So once we reach a level where it just enters sort of that endemic state within the community, where it's going to exist at a low level, but hopefully not cause the disease burden that we're seeing now, it's really not going to mutate all that often. Dr. Sandra Nelson, infectious disease specialist, Massachusetts General Hospital, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. A group of frustrated parents suing the L.A. school district, which is the second largest in the country. It's because they say the district failed to act in the best interests of students by letting the teachers union control when schools should reopen. Parents say the pandemic was used as a cover to improve the union's position. With us is Glenn Sachs, social studies teacher, James Monroe High in L.A., the union rep there, but speaking for himself, not the union, and Timothy Snowball, litigation counsel for Freedom Foundation, the group representing the parents who were unhappy. So, Timothy, what's the problem here? Yeah, I think the issue here when it basically boils down to it is that we've, you know, the scientific consensus is clear. We've known for quite a while now that it's safe to reopen schools and to do so in a safe manner. And when you look at the record in the past year, the actions of UTLA have been obstructionist. They have done pretty much everything they can do to prevent children from returning to school. And again, not based upon any purported health or safety concerns. When you consult the record, it's very clear that they are preventing kids from going back to school based upon a political agenda. And all we need to do is consult the record and the laundry list of different items that have been demanded over the past year, including defunding police, uh, providing housing for the homeless, uh, a $250 million cash payment from the federal government, et cetera, et cetera. And the list goes on. And while, of course, UTLA is welcome under the U.S. Constitution to have political views and to seek a political agenda, they can't hold public school children in California and Los Angeles hostage in order to make that happen. So you're saying they were trying to work in those things under this reopening, and that's why it took so long to do? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it was Rahm Emanuel out in Chicago, right, who said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And so when you look at the record, you look at the statements of UTLA's president and different things that have been put out by them in the last year, really, they're they're using COVID-19 as an excuse to seek political items that otherwise they've been unable to achieve. And again, they're more than welcome to, to go out and to seek political uh, items that they'd like and to say whatever they'd like in the press. But the fact of the matter is children are suffering. Children in California, across the United States and in Los Angeles are suffering. And we've never seen numbers like this. Uh, suicide, substance abuse, physical ailments, especially our clients in this case, um, have gone from well-adjusted kids to, in many cases, addicted to video games, socially isolated, experiencing depression or suicidal ideations. And the union has allowed this to go on and, and to held their power over the district in order to try to get these concessions from them, the welfare of the kids uh, notwithstanding. Okay, uh, so hold that uh, thinking there, uh, Timothy. Glenn, uh, I'm guessing that you don't agree with a substantial amount, maybe you do, at least some of it, of what uh, Timothy Snowball just said. Well, most of that's just factually wrong. You know, I'm really surprised they would try to base a lawsuit on this. All these claims that conservatives have been making since last summer, and they've been discredited last since last summer, about us trying to demand all these things before we open the schools. My favorite one, and, and uh, Mr. Snowball has this in his recent article on it, is that we've been demanding Medicare for all before we reopen schools. As if we think Austin Buechner has the power to institute a $30 trillion uh, uh, federal entitlement. I mean, we might as well you know, demand the dictatorship of the proletariat, or however realistic that claim is. These claims have been discredited since last summer, and here they are basing a lawsuit on it. I'm shocked. Now, where they get that from, there was some material that 
UTLA put out about how uh, we're moving forward in the struggle. We won't go back and we're fighting for this, fighting for that. I'll admit it was a little wor worded, a little sloppily, but this whole thing about how we're not going to go back to school until we get all these wild demands met. It's just crazy. And I'm shocked. That, I mean, this isn't a lawsuit. It's just a publicity stuff. So Let's be clear. You mentioned yeah, it's conservatives. A it's, a, it's, a, it's a publicity stunt. OK, and they have as much chance of winning as I do, of, you know, starting at shortstop for the Dodgers. Okay? <laughs> you you but, mentioned conservatives, though. Is that what you think this is? Is just some anti-union lawyers trying to find a way to, to go after you guys? Oh, we know all about it. He's with the Freedom Foundation. We all know we know all about them. They're always uh, harassing uh, LAUSD teachers with these idiotic emails telling us that we should abandon our union and unions are bad, et cetera. The, the union that has protected us the union that makes it so that we actually have time to do our jobs properly instead of having endless yard duties and all sorts of other extraneous duties like they did in the non-union schools where I work, the, the uh, union that defends our health care and makes sure that we're paid decently. Uh, yeah, I would I would defend them. And they've, they've been attacking us for years. And okay. In terms all right. Wait, wait, wait. Hold, 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 wait, hold, hold it there. Uh, so, so yeah. Timothy, wait, hold it. So, Timothy. Uh, you've accused in your lawsuit anyway, and just now in the air, you've accused the teachers union of having a sort of its own political agenda that is very uh, different uh, and, and certainly separate from the welfare of the children. Glenn Sachs is saying, in effect, well, you know, you guys have an agenda, too. And then your agenda is also much different than just the welfare of the kids. So what do you say about that? You have an agenda, don't you? Well, my, my personal agenda is to see the civil rights and the other legal rights and duties and responsibilities of parents and other union members in California enforced. And I'm not sure where Glenn, you know, what his legal background and legal education is, but my own legal education and background tells me that his assessment is, is, is quite incorrect. I mean, in fact, there were hundreds of pages uh, just recently in regards to another lawsuit that were obtained in discovery showing the negotiations, detailing the negotiations between UTLA representatives and LAUSD representatives last summer from July to December. And you have UTLA representatives stating on the record, they're now part of the public record saying, we're not a labor union. We're not just a labor union. UTLA is a social justice organization. And we need the district to embrace that view, this larger view as a social justice organization. So their political agenda is quite clear. We're not talking about some misstated emails. Now, in regards to the mission of the Freedom Foundation and, and my own practice uh, generally, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protects public, public workers' rights to decide for themselves whether or not they want to fund or join a public labor union as defined by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2018. Now, while I'm sure Glenn does not like that opinion, and I'm sure UTLA doesn't like that opinion, it is the law of the land pursuant to the United States Supreme Court. And if the Freedom Foundation wants to inform public workers about their rights so that they can make their own decisions about labor membership, uh, I'm not sure why Glenn would have a problem with that. Glenn, uh, let's take one of their points and get you to respond to it. It's that the reopening isn't really a reopening because it's it's half days for the young kids. And then the older ones, high school, it's it's still Zoom classes. You just put them all in the same room on campus instead. You know, some headlines from the past few days, quote, new infections are up 20 percent in past two weeks. Impending doom, CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky warns of possible fourth wave of COVID. Right now, I'm scared. Fauci warns U.S. is in danger of surge as COVID-19 cases increase. France and Germany have shut their schools almost completely down. Um, you know, we're just acting to protect our kids. Is it going to be fun? No, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be fun 
for the kids. It's not going to be social. We're not going to get our old lives back until COVID is gone. And that's not UTLA's fault. That's not LAUSD's fault. That's COVID's fault. Maybe the gentleman should be suing COVID instead of us. I don't know. But we're just acting to keep our kids safe. And we said from the beginning that, you know, uh, Mr. Snowball keeps referencing angry parents, angry parents. I knew from the beginning and, and the union knew from the beginning that the vast majority of parents agree with us. They don't want their kids put in a dangerous situation. And most of them are not sending their kids uh, back to school because they know the hazards. And in the communities that these kids live in, uh, you know, the, the infection rates are very high. I've had a bunch of my students, uh, parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, uh, died just in the past three or four months. Are we supposed to ignore that? It's supposed to pretend that that's not happening? Well, uh, Timothy, he raises some interesting points. Sure, I'd like to respond to that. I mean, first of all, I, I don't know that I've mentioned anything about angry parents on this call or anywhere else. I've mentioned suicidal children. Uh, I've mentioned children who are suffering from physical and mental uh health problems because of the schools being closed down at the behest of UCLA. I, so there, there's, there's a lot going on here, but I think uh, rather than angry parents, we should be focusing on suffering children. Now, in regards to purported surges of COVID-19, I would invite any of your listeners or anyone else to consult our actual legal complaint, uh, the document we filed in California court. It has a plethora of different studies that are peer-reviewed and well-established now showing the extremely low risk, the extremely low risk of reopening schools. And so I would ask anyone to not rely upon UTLA or, or Mr. Sachs talking points, but rather to consult the or, actual or the CDC or the CDC or medical experts. Let's not rely on them either. And I'm really glad Mr. Snowball wants to lecture me about what's good for our students and caring, actually caring for our students. Sweetheart, I work seven days a week, 70 hours a week, all through the school year from beginning to end. I work for now, Mr. Mr. Sachs, now, now, Mr. Sachs, what do you do when a student interrupts you in class? You know that's not uh, good manners. Now, I'd like to finish what I was saying. What I was saying was, rather than relying upon the talking points that I'm sure Mr. Sachs has in front of him, given to him by UTLA, what we need to look at is the actual statements made by UTLA representatives uh, in higher positions of power over the last year. And it's quite clear that their opposition to schools reopening has been based upon a laundry list of social justice talking points, which is fine, again, if they want to pursue those political agenda talking points, they can do so. What they cannot do is have children suffering and harm incurring to families and children as the basis for doing that. And we need to look no further than, again, the records I was uh, re referencing before are from the Shaw lawsuit, which is a separate lawsuit. These documents were recovered as part of the discovery process in that lawsuit. So we don't even have to look at the media in order to derive what UTLA's actual intentions are. Here we have actual records of behind the scenes negotiations with UTLA and LAUSD uh, talking about UTLA's actual uh, intentions in this case. Okay, uh, uh, Timothy, uh, wait, 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 wait. I, I actually do get to interrupt. So, 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 so Timothy, let, let, let me ask you something. Uh, because it seems to me there, there is something that both of you gentlemen are saying that are kind of true. Uh, on the one hand, what Glenn Sachs is saying is, is true, that, that, that uh, school systems have been uh, closed down just today. Uh, in fact, in, in France, they announced they're closing schools down for at least uh, three more weeks because the infection rate is rising. And Timothy, you're also correct that the studies up to this point have tended to show that, especially with the younger grades, the infection rate is is extremely low in schools. But here's my point, uh, Timothy. 
they are low in schools until they're not. Uh, they're low in schools, and everybody opens them up all over the world with great expectations and great hope. And then we have seen examples in Israel. We now see examples in, in France and I believe also in Italy, where even though they went through a rather protracted period where everything seemed okay in schools, then all of a sudden it wasn't. So what happens if, you know, everybody opens up and all the kids go back into the classrooms and then we find ourselves a month or so down the road in the same situation that France is today, in the same situation that Israel was in a few months ago? Great question. I think that the thing that distinguishes mainly from the examples you're using is the fact that government entities in those countries, Italy, France, and Israel, are the ones who are actually deciding democratically uh, on behalf of the people that elected them in those countries to make these kinds of decisions. You have quite a different situation in Los Angeles. Here, UTLA is an unelected, purportedly private entity, a third-party entity that is wielding political power over the local school district. No one elected uh, UTLA or any representative of UTLA to be making these kinds of decisions. There's no democratic oversight in this case. They're simply wielding raw political power and the district is beholden to that political power. So if schools reopened and if local governments who are actually elected by the people decide to make some changes, that's up to them. And that's between them and their constituents. That's something quite different than the current situation in Los Angeles. Timothy Snowball, Litigation Counsel, Freedom Foundation, Glenn Sachs, Social Studies, James Monroe High in LAUSD. Brazil is dealing with a sustained COVID surge as the Brazilian variant continues to spread. Some researchers there say the country is facing the biggest health system collapse in its history. Many of the country's intensive care units have reached capacity. All this seems to be centered around the very controversial president there, who's been called South America's Donald Trump, Oliver Stunkel, professor of international relations, the Getulio Vargas Foundation in Sao Paulo. Professor, why is the situation so dire there? Uh, well, the uh, Brazilian president has, uh, from early on in the pandemic, um, embraced a pretty much denialist strategy, and I would say much more radical than has been the case in the United States. Uh, during the Trump presidency, uh, the the president here has dismissed uh, uh, two ministers of health because they refused to endorse chloroquine uh, as a medicine because there was no scientific proof. Uh, the president has actively criticized the use of masks and uh, is also very critical of any kind of social distancing measures because he believes that it will hurt the economy and his chances for re-election. So as a consequence, there's been no national strategy and governors and mayors are trying to make ends meet somehow, even actually purchasing vaccines from abroad, which is something that the federal government has not done. So as a consequence, there's a very chaotic response because there's no real coordination between governors, several of which hope to run for president. So they're thinking about this in political terms. And that explains why we now are approaching 4000 deaths a day. Uh, we're in a situation we're now entering winter uh, in the next month, so things will uh, deteriorate further and the health system has pretty much collapsed. And I think the world is aware that Brazil represents the risks, which explains why uh, right now Brazilians can barely travel anywhere uh, because the world is basically trying to physically isolate Brazil to uh, reduce the risk of transmission. 
and the people think what of this? You can't speak for everybody, but I guess it's a different situation from, you know, having a mask mandate or not, or I should wear my mask, and then the president is actively, you know, criticizing them. That's different than just saying there's no, you know, coordinated effort to, to stem this. Yeah, so I, I think the president um, made a bet on pandemic fatigue, uh, and in Latin America, the percentage of people who can work remotely is much, much smaller than the United States. Uh, so here uh, it's about one quarter. So only 25 percent of people can work at home. So the president sort of said, you know, those health experts who tell you to stay at home, uh, they're elites. They can work from their homes because they have nice homes and, you know, they have you know beach houses. So for them, the lockdown is really not that bad. Whereas I'm on the side sort of of a common man and I know you have to work. Uh, and that has been, you know, quite popular. I mean, he's still remarkably popular is now it's beginning to erode because some people are seeing that the rest of the world is, you know, not necessarily going back to normal, but the situation is certainly improving. Uh, but he's I think, you know, he's politically, uh, you know, he acts intuitively and those who expected him to, you know, collapse early on in the pandemic because of his anti-scientific approach have been proven wrong. I, th I still think he has a good shot at uh, being uh, reelected. Now, even though, what was it, just the other day, uh, the uh, three heads, I think it's three, of the armed forces in Brazil all resigned because uh, another person in the cabinet of the president was fired. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the, Bolsonaro has clearly authoritarian ambitions, uh, and it, this is not an interpretation. That's just in a very explicit manner. He's been elected on on a sort of strongman ticket, uh, and I think that uh, he's constantly seeking to concentrate power to weaken Congress, to weaken the Supreme Court. He likes to speak of his armed forces, and that has caused some resistance now. He's actually asked um, the, uh, the minister of justice to, uh, to green light an attempt to use the armed forces to keep governors from, from imposing lockdowns. So he's actually threatening the governors and saying, you cannot do that. And I will use my army to break the lockdowns. And that caused the uh, minister of defense to resign. Now, in a way, that's good news because it shows that, you know, the armed forces won't go along with whatever the president says. But it also now allows the president to appoint new generals, which may be more aligned. And clearly, I think the big lesson that Bolsonaro derives from what happened in the United States on January 6th is that Trump is no longer in office because the, the armed forces were not on his side. They were clearly committed to upholding the Constitution. And I think that is a very different matter, much less certain in Brazil. So we are also facing there a severe threat to uh, democratic governance in the midst of this pandemic. Oliver Stunkel, Professor of International Relations, Getulio Vargas Foundation in Sao Paulo. Coming up after this short break, could a vaccine cocktail offer better immunity? They say if you're going to drink, never mix your alcohol, and that means don't go from you know beer to the hard stuff. Just stick with one kind of drink. But is it the same for vaccines. Yeah, these are the questions. If you mix and match, what happens? Dr. John Moore, microbiologist, immunologist at Cornell Medical College. So, doctor, is there some reason to believe that mixing the vaccines would give you better or longer immunity? Well, let's put this to bed straight away. At the moment, it's not something that people are going to be allowed to do. 
it's it's there simply isn't the clinical data to prove that it's the right thing to do that it's safe and effective the fda has said that in extreme circumstances you can take first moderna and then pfizer or vice versa but this is not recommended it's allowed in extreme circumstances and it would not be dangerous and it would be surely effective but because there's no clinical data on it fda isn't keen on it so we scientists don't recommend it either. And there is no data uh, to support taking first Pfizer or Moderna and then J&J because, again, it's not being tested. And the whole basis of, of why we're confident in the vaccines is that their usage is based on proven clinical data. So this is not something that people should do. And in fact, you would not be allowed to do it if you go to the vaccine sites and make requests like this. Now, having said that, there are going to be clinical studies in this area. There's already one ongoing in the UK with a number of vaccine companies are going to participate in it. There are studies being designed in the USA to look into exactly this idea to see if it is a better combination vaccine than, than uh, keeping just in one composition. So we're going to look at this. But right now, it's not something the public should be thinking about. Well, let's stay on the theoretical path for a second then. Would this be Pfizer and Moderna? Because those are kind of made the same way. Or do you want something that's like Pfizer and then J&J or AstraZeneca because, you know, they came from a different place. So sure. maybe it gives you something different because the mix is, yeah. is different. That's the, that's the point, that you wouldn't be testing Pfizer and Moderna together because that wouldn't give you an advantage. It would be so similar. But I, I, my background is in HIV vaccine science. And for, for decades, there have been clinical trials of, say, the, the equivalent of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, followed by, say, the equivalent of the Novavax vaccine, which isn't licensed yet, but probably will be soon. So there's plenty of, of precedent. and uh, it's, it's not unsafe and it gives you some advantages, but it may not. We don't know if the, any advantages or otherwise will translate from HIV to coronavirus. But conceptually, you mix two different classes of vaccine to see if they go well together. And as I say, there's plenty of precedent for the idea. But for us to be able to use that in the COVID vaccine world, we need the clinical data. Other than doing uh, studies of, you know, mixing different uh, types of vaccines, is there a need, though, now to also do studies comparing the vaccines in, in a true clinical trial where, you know, half the people get, say, Pfizer and half the people get Johnson & Johnson? Because that hasn't been done either. Well, not strictly. It hasn't been done. But the efficacy trial data are generally done under pretty similar conditions. So we have a good idea of the outcome. And we know that from results last December and January that Moderna and Pfizer, which are very similar vaccines, give essentially identical uh, protection levels. So, you know, it's not possible to do every experiment you might want to do because the focus over the past six months especially has been getting vaccines licensed and rolled out and so all of the all of the uh, the effort and there's always you know finite resources have gone into getting the vaccines out rather than doing uh, additional studies on you know what might be down the road i think the next wave of studies we're going to see is testing uh new designs against the virus variants that are starting to circulate so these are uh, variants have been taken into account in, in tweaking the designs of the leading vaccines. 
and new new designs are going to be tested and, and pretty soon in case they're needed, which we don't yet know. I don't want to say we lucked out because there were, you know, really smart scientists behind these, but are you surprised at, at how well these work when we needed them to so badly? I think we were all surprised that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines came in at 95% efficacy. Nobody expected it to be that high. We were hoping for something 70, that kind of ballpark. The FDA had said that 50% was the minimum ballpark, minimum mark for licensing the vaccine. Well, those two vaccines blew past it. And and uh, J&J is also highly effective at present, preventing disease, you know, severe disease and death, which is the most important element of it. But, you know, these vaccines didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, it wasn't like vaccine science started in March of 2020. They were, all these vaccines were based on existing designs, mostly from the HIV and influenza worlds, uh, some from Zika and Ebola studies. So the existing designs were tweaked, where they were repurposed to present coronavirus antigens, coronavirus proteins, to make them coronavirus specific. So there was a reasonable confidence that something good would come out of these studies, even when they started, you know, in March of last year or earlier than that even. But I don't think anyone really expected to get 95% efficacy in the first two uh, vaccine trials. That was a welcome bonus. Dr. John Moore, microbiologist, immunologist at Cornell Medical College. You've probably heard the saying, the rich get richer. Well, it's true even during a pandemic. A new analysis from the Institute for Policy Studies found the world's 2,365 billionaires boosted their wealth by $4 trillion between March of last year and this year. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, the world's wealthiest person, saw his fortune soar to $178 billion from $113 billion. The total wealth of the world's billionaire class grew 44% during the pandemic year. This is an Odyssey original podcast. Find us on odyssey.com and the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. So at my, like, uh, 30,000, I'm getting closer to the $178 billion that, that he has. I would have a yacht, and you would never see me again. <laughs>